We're going to begin at verse 19, and we'll just look at verse 19 through 23. Paul writes this. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. This is God's word for us this afternoon. If you would, let's spend one last time praying before we consider it. Okay? Oh, Father, we would ask that in these next few moments, you indeed would be our teacher. We uh, do not come before you right now just because that's what you're supposed to do before you open up your word. But we come before you because we're desperate and we're needy, and we, we can't get this apart from your Spirit's enabling grace. So please speak to me and through me and despite me and so that in some way uh, this glorious word of yours will become real and pertinent in our lives. And we would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at what it means to participate in God's mission for the rest of our time. And what I want to do is I want to look at this from eight different angles. Okay, that's a joke. We're three angles. <laughs> three different angles. And uh, what I want to do is just kind of lay that out for you. I want to look at the why of mission, the what of mission, and then the how of mission. Or if you're, if you're into the alliterative outlines, you could, you could go at it this way. You could say the purpose of mission, the pattern of mission, and then the power for it. So you get that, the why, the what, the how. The purpose, the pattern, the power. Whatever. Okay. Let's look at the first one. The purpose of mission. In other words, why do we do this? Why do we um, involve ourselves in the mission of God? Well, I'm sure that you notice, but that Paul starts laying out that he adapts himself to other people, to the life of other people. So in verse 20, he says, to the Jew, I became like a Jew. He says in verse 22, to the weak, I became like the weak. Now the question is, why does he do this? Why does he adapt and mold and shift his life to the life of other people? Well, he actually gives you three reasons. Not me, he does. So I want to to just show you these one at a time. The first reason that he gives you, he tells you all throughout this, the reason he does this is so that he might win them. Look at verse 19. To win as many as possible. Verse 20, he writes, to win the Jews. Verse 20 again, to win those under the law. Verse 21, so as to win those not having the law. Verse 22, to win the weak. Five different times, he says, the purpose of my life's mission is to win other people. In other words, what I want you to see, he doesn't say the purpose of my life's agenda is not to win the election. It's not to win the culture. It's to win people. 
People who are trapped in the kingdom of darkness, I live my life in such a way so as to win them and free them from the kingdom of darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of light. That's the first purpose, the first why response that he gives to why he does this. Here's the second reason he gives you. It's in verse 23, and it's a little bit of a summary statement to everything he just said, but I'll just read it to you. He says, I do this so that, there's the purpose clause, by all possible means I might save some. He says, I live my life in a certain way so that I might save some. Now, does that make you a little bit uncomfortable to hear Paul talking like this? I mean, Paul, don't you know that you can't save anyone? God's the one that saves people. What are you talking about? You are living your life so that you can save people. Well, what is going on there? Well, the way that you have to understand this is that there's all, and I can show you this if I, if I had more time, but Paul assumes in the background of everything that he writes that the instrument that God uses to accomplish his purposes is the church. It, it is his people that he uses to, uh, to save other people. So, for example, in Mark chapter 6, in, in RUF this semester, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're getting ready to come up to that great story where you know, there's the feeding of the 5,000. And so you've got all this horde of starving people because Jesus has been a little long-winded. And so the disciples come to Jesus, and they're like, hey, everybody is starving. We've got to send them out of here to go. They've got to go home and get some food. And Jesus is like, you feed them. And they're like, that's insane. This is a massive amount of people. that would take eight months worth of paychecks to feed everybody. And he's like, okay, well, what do you got? I'm like, well, we got five biscuits and two sardines. That's what we got. Jesus kind of does his thing and uh, has them distribute that. And what happens? Of course, everyone is filled, satisfied, and there's tons of leftovers. Now, Jesus could have said, okay, I'm just going to snap my fingers and everybody's instantly, you know, has a feast in front of them. Like, you know, Dumbledore just kind of does his thing and there's a feast that appears. But he doesn't do that. He involves the disciples. So the question is, okay, who fed all those people? Well, Jesus did. But not just Jesus. His people did as well. His disciples did. Jesus fed the masses through his people. In the same way, God saves people through his people. The church, you, we are God's chosen instrument to advance his kingdom. That's why Paul can talk like this. Let's look at this uh, third reason that he provides. It's in verse 23. He says, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel so that, there's the purpose clause, I may share in its blessings. And some of your translations may say, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, what does that mean? Because that's a curious little phrase. Well, there's a scholar by the name of R.H. Linsky who speaks to this little clause and what this means, and I think it's really helpful. Here's what he writes. He says this, Paul is saying, if I omit this concern of love for others... Although through my work, devoid of such love, others may be saved, yet I myself would not be saved. I'll read it again because it's a little clunky, but let me, let me read it again. He says this, Paul is saying, if I omit concern of love for others, although through my work, devoid of that love, some people may be saved, I myself would not be saved. You see what he's saying? Here's what he's basically saying. 
The purpose of Paul's life is such that if he does not have concern for unbelievers, if he does not have love and compassion for unbelievers, that proves that his faith is false. So he says, the reason why I do this is so that I may participate in the gospel itself. I need to, in some ways, prove and validate that I am really following Jesus. And the way that I do that is by loving and caring for other people. Because if that love and that care for other people is not there, I prove that I'm not in the gospel, that my faith is false. And so what he's getting at with kind of this third purpose clause is really the necessity of mission. This is, this, is a, this is not optional for real Christians. If you are um, connected to Jesus, this transforms what you love. And the thing that Jesus loves is sinners. If you go over to the very next chapter in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 32. Paul says something that's kind of in the same vein. He says this. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. There it is is again, similar sort of language. He says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Here's what he's saying. To be connected to Jesus means... That you are pushed out to love and to serve unbelievers. That's what it means in part to be connected to Jesus. That's why he says, follow me because that's what I'm doing. I'm following Jesus' lead. And so just think about what Jesus did. Jesus, of course, second person of the Trinity, in heaven from all eternity, leaves the glory of heaven. Leaves that intimate, personal presence of God and comes to this messy, fallen, broken world. And lives the perfect life pursuing and chasing people that would insult him and throw things at him and nail him up to a cross. And the reason why he left the glories of heaven to come and undergo that sort of treatment is so that he would win and get the very people that are doing that to him. Do you see the gospel logic there? This is the model that, that Paul is laying out for us. Jesus himself leaves, accommodates himself to sinful, you know, humanity, dies so that he could get lost people, lost sinners. And so what Paul is basically saying is, look, if I don't give my life away to love other people, how can I say I'm connected to Jesus when that seems to be the heart and soul of Jesus himself? Do you see the logic there? How can I say that I am That Jesus is at the center of my life if I don't love and have a compassionate concern for unbelievers. Because at the center of Jesus' heart is a compassionate concern for unbelievers. His future church one day. Look, you may not, uh, you probably don't know this about my wife, but she's a little bit of a health freak. That's, that's probably a little bit too strong of a language. She's a health freak compared to me because I'm, I'm, I'm so disgusting in what I like to eat. But she, what I basically mean is she likes to eat healthy. She you know, likes light, organic, healthy food. So let's say I wanted to treat my wife on a special date. And so I pick her up and I take her to this famous restaurant in Boone, Daniel Boone Inn. 
And I take her there, and if you're familiar, they serve you 800 plates of mostly fried food, and most of it's covered in gravy and butter. Now, if, if that were my way of treating Catherine, she, she would get to the restaurant and be like, you don't, you don't get me. You don't really understand me. This is not a treat. I don't like this, this type of food. And, and what she would be saying is, look, if you understood my heart, you would know what I like. If we say that we love Jesus and claim that Jesus is at the center of our heart, the center of our life, and yet that isn't pushing us out to love and to serve and to welcome and care for unbelievers, then how can we say we're connected to Jesus? It's like taking my wife to the Daniel Boone Inn. It's like he would be looking at us and say, you don't get me. You don't understand me. You don't really love me after all. You're loving a figment of your imagination because the real me, the real Jesus, has at the forefront of his heart and of his mind the redemption of his people. And that has to impact our lives. That has to change the way that we think about life. And I think this is where most typical Reformed Presbyterian people like you and me get a little bit derailed. Because we have lost our sense of mission. We've we've lost our sense of mission. And if we're going to stand strong in every stage, we've got to reclaim this. Otherwise, we're just going to rot. And we're going to lose our joy and we're going to lose our purpose. Have we become content with country club Christianity? Where we only hang out with people that think like us, look like us, talk like us, vote like us, read the same books as us, watch the same talk shows as us. Is that all we do? Because if that's all we do, that's country club Christianity. And if that's where you find yourself stuck, you won't be able to stand strong. You, you will eventually get bored and apathetic, and Christianity will, become a, will just become a country club, a, a social thing that you go to, and it will have no real impact in your life. And the thing that we have to think about is, has Christianity really been truncated like that for us? You know, if if we look at the purpose of our life, would that square with these three purposes that Paul just listed? To win those, to save those, so that we may participate in the gospel ourselves. Is that the purpose of your life? Is that the purpose of your church? Is Is that... what you even are thinking about, that unbelievers are on your radar, that you, that you live your life differently because of what the gospel means to you. Because what Paul is saying is that this is not optional. This is, this is what it means to be connected to the person of Jesus. Or, as we think, does being connected to the person of Jesus mean that we have two or three cozy little meetings with each other once a, you know, every week? And that's the extent of it. He's looking at us and he's saying, uh, country club Christianity is not Christianity. That is the, that's the purpose. That's why we do this thing called mission, participating in God's mission to redeem the world. Now, I know some of you are saying, okay, Matt, okay, how in the world does this play out? Because I'm already maxed out. I'm already exhausted. I'm already getting pulled from every single extreme. I've got tons of responsibilities with my family, my kids, my job. And you told me earlier this morning, now I've got to throw myself into this intense, intimate community. And now I've got to love everybody in the world. (laughs) Where do you find the time for this? 
preacher boy. <laughs> well, well, let's look. Secondly, let's look secondly at the pattern of mission. The what. What this actually looks like. And there is actually a lot that I could say at this point, but really for the sake of time, I'm going to be very, very broad. So look at verse 19 again. Paul writes this. He says, okay, though I am free and I belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone. Paul is saying the gospel really has provided me a radical freedom. In other words, I am freed from having to earn my righteousness, from having to earn my salvation through keeping the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. The gospel frees me to not be bound in that old pattern, that old way anymore. And so he, and so he goes on and basically says, uh, I'm free, I'm, I'm flexible now. This is, this is his, his, his whole point, by the way, of chapters 8 through 10. His freedom, his flexibility as, as a Christian and as an apostle. And so what he's basically saying is, now, as a Jewish Christian, if I walk into the house of a Gentile who may be a pluralist, an animist, a humanist, or whatever-ist that doesn't love Jesus, and they serve me something to eat, I'm free in the gospel to eat it and to enjoy it. And so this is, just basically, this is basically his point. He says, I can now use my Christian freedom to serve other people. I freely, willingly, voluntarily choose to make myself a slave to other people, to win them, to serve them, to care for them. But he says, but if I use my freedom for self-indulgence, just, hey, I'm free, I can kind of do whatever I want now. If I use my freedom to bend over into self-indulgence, then it's no longer freedom, now it's slavery. This is his point, by the way. You, you don't have to look it up, but I'll just read it to you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. And that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Because Jesus said, I came not to be served, but what? To serve. Exactly. So Paul's basically saying this. Okay, the gospel now affords me flexibility. And I can now adapt to the sensitivities, to the desires, to the inclinations of unbelievers around me so that I may win them. So that I may win them to Christ. Now, here's the million dollar question. Does this mean that Paul is advocating that we become sinful to win sinful people? Is Paul saying, uh, you know, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. I become like an adulterer to win the adulterers. I become like a drunkard to win the drunkards. Of course not. Of course that's not what he's saying. Look, 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 he is saying we are never free to disobey God. This is why in verse 21 he says, I'm not free from God's law. We're never free to disobey God. So here is, I, I want you to just sense, I'm trying to put pressure on you to just sense how tricky this is. Because over here you have rigid separatism. We're going to stay totally distinct from the world. We don't want anything to do with those wicked, nasty unbelieving pagans, rigid separatism. And then over here you have sinful accommodation. Hey, we're free. We're going to just look exactly like the world, do whatever they do, just kind of jump in. And, and Paul is saying there is a razor's edge between both of these, and that's, the, that's where we have to walk. 
We have to walk along that razor's edge. And if we don't, then we make zero impact in the world. If you're over here and you say, I'm going to be totally distinct from the world and have nothing to do with the world, then you're going to have no relevance to the world either. And you can't speak to the world because you have no relationship with the world. And if you're over here and you're simply accommodating and you look exactly like the world, you participate in all the same things that they do, then, then you, have no, you have no grounds to call the world to repentance and to call the world to holiness. You, both sides loses impact. You have to walk a, a razor's edge of, on the one hand, looking exactly like the world, and on the other hand, looking exactly not like it. You have to be 100% like this culture and 100% distinct from it. And of course, the model for this is the Lord Jesus himself. The doctrine of the incarnation is what? Jesus becomes like us. He becomes 100% man. He fully accommodates. He's 100% like us. And yet, he doesn't over-accommodate and become a sinful man. So he's 100% just like us and yet 100% radically distinct from us because he's perfect. And that is the model that we have to walk down. That's the razor's edge. We have to look exactly like the world and yet radically distinct from it. Now, the question is, okay, when do you cross some line and you start getting into sin out of a desire to reach out to the world? Well, I don't know. And this is where it gets tricky, and I don't have the answer to that, and that's not the point we're going to camp on. But I leave that for you to ponder. But what I want to do is just, I'm just making the overall case. I just want you to see the pattern that Paul is talking about here, that he is willing to give up his freedoms for the sake of unbelievers. He is willing to be flexible with things that are not sin issues, For the sake of unbelievers. He's willing to adapt to the culture and not get get bent out of shape for the sake of unbelievers. And here's the question, are you? Are you willing to use your freedoms to adapt to unbelievers? To adapt and to bend and to give up and to be flexible with things that you can give up on. Now... I want to make two little points of application before we go on because I think it's, this is really hard and this is really tricky and this is really important. But we've got to do some inside work and we've got to do some outside work. And this is not, thus saith the Lord, what I'm about to share with you. I, just, I want to provide some unsolicited suggestions on how we can get this conversation going amongst ourselves. On what is it that are non-sin issues that we can give up For the sake of winning unbelievers. Because, okay, let's look at the inside work first. And what I mean by that is we've got to do some self-evaluation here. We've got to do some spring cleaning in our own closets. Because you know and I know there are certain unnecessarily alienating things that we do as Christians that alienate us from unbelievers and alienate unbelievers from us that are not sin issues, that we could freely give up. And I, Okay, so let's think about what some of those may be. Again, these are unsolicited suggestions. Here's the first. I think we need to stop using alienating theological jargon. And what I mean by that is, you know, Christians, we have, an in, we have insider language. 
And if we have unbelievers sitting in our midst, they don't know what covenants are. They don't know what the ordo salutis is. They don't know what Calvinism is. And if we throw around this language and just assume they know what we're talking about, what we're implicitly doing is we're asking them to accommodate to us. And that's not reformed, by the way. That's not Calvinistic. It's we go after them because that's exactly what Jesus did with us. So if we're going to use thick, gloriously wonderful theological vocabulary, we've at least got to define our terms. And if we're not going to define it, we shouldn't use it. We should come up with better language to accommodate them. That's, that's what I mean by being flexible, by, by giving up something that's unnecessarily alienating, and it shouldn't. Here's another one. I think we need to unglue our politics from our Christianity. I mean, this is a this is a election year, as you know, and I, you're maybe familiar with all the bricks that are being thrown all over Facebook from both sides, and maybe in you know conversations or whatever. And I just think it's really unhelpful to have an unbeliever look at us and see that as the thing that we lead with. We lead with our political stance, and because they may have a different political opinion, and that from the beginning now alienates you, and that doesn't accommodate you to them. So, you know, I I have college students, because this is an election year, I've had a number of conversations where students are asking me, who are you going to vote for? What side are you really on? And I don't tell them. I refuse to tell them. Because I think they're really trying to sniff out as someone who's, you know, a ministry figure. What is the Christian side? What's the Christian party? And there is no Christian party. Jesus isn't a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not a Tea Party-ist. He's the king of the universe. He's not accommodated to our little governmental systems. And so this doesn't mean you can't be politically active, that you can't be politically involved. It just means are you leading with that? And is that unnecessarily alienating unbelievers who may have a different political opinion? What can we be flexible? What can we give up? What can we turn the volume down for the sake of unbelievers? I think another sort of inside work cleanup that we can do is, is to unglue, in a similar sort of situation, our uh, parenting decisions or our schooling decisions. And I know this could get a little spicy here, but there is no Christian posture towards schooling or parenting, I think. You know, there, I know Christians that homeschool their kids, Christians that private school their kids, Christians that send them to public school. And when we lead with those marks, it's, it's alienated to other people that don't have that same opinion. And so my, my whole point with this inside work is, and I know this is really hard because sometimes you feel like this is a sin issue. And sometimes you're like, well, maybe it's not. We can kind of give this thing up. But the, the thing is that we have to start asking the question, what can we give up? What can we be flexible about for the sake of unbelievers? And what do we need to kind of buckle down and say, no, we can't give ground on this. This is a, this is a, a sin issue. This is an issue of God. Those are all tricky, all challenging, and I don't have the answer to all of them. But I throw it out to you to play with amongst yourselves. But at least, are we thinking that way? Where can we be flexible for the sake of unbelievers? That's the inside work. We have to keep the gospel central. It's basically the whole point of that. Don't convolute cultural issues with gospel issues. That's the inside work. And let's, let's talk about the outside work real quick. And here's what I mean by that. And this is the, the work of actually moving towards other people. Because this whole passage in 1 Corinthians 9, it presupposes that Paul knows the cultural customs 
of the unbelievers he wants to reach. He's done research. He's been thinking about it. I, okay, I know when I'm with this Gentile, I can, I can accommodate to Gentile customs because he knows what those are. When I'm with Jewish people, I accommodate to Jewish customs because he was born and raised in that particular culture. So what does it look like for us to do some outside work? What can we do practically to move into the lives of unbelievers? Well, again, these are unsolicited suggestions. Well, one is I think... The, very basic. Just get to know your unbelieving neighbors. Have them over for dinner or for drinks and serve them something good. And they may hate Jesus and vote on the other side of you and you need to lay that meal out for them and get to know them and love them. Because that's what we're called to do. To love our neighbors with gospel hospitality. Another idea is just to get involved in your local community. You know, join the PTA. Uh, let your kids play sports with the kids' uh, you know, from other unbelieving families, you know, don't just do church youth group or church uh, little league stuff, but get them involved in the little leagues in your community, in your town, and actually get to know the families that are sitting on the sidelines as y'all's kids are playing soccer with each other. Just an idea. You can join a club and get to know other unbelievers that way. You can talk to other unbelievers at your gym if you're so athletic. If you have little kids, you can have your kids join a play group with other unbelievers that you may know from your town or your city. And actually, you know, talk with the other moms while your kids are playing with each other. If you're a student in college or high school or wherever you are, you can get to know your classmates, your people in your hall. I mean, the, the reality is God has put you in a particular context for a providential reason. I mean, we are reformed, right? And so the people that he's put around you is intentional. Get to know them. You're on that street for a reason. You're in that classroom for a reason. You're in that particular club. You're, you know, your kids are involved in this particular sport. You're getting to know these families for a reason. Take advantage of it. God's giving you unbelievers to say, here, get to know them. Love them. Reach out to them. Share the gospel with them. That's what I mean by the outside work. Now, some of you are so busy and exhausted and maxed out, it feels like there's nothing. You have no room in your life for this. So the question is, okay, what can you give up? What can you cut out? If you're going to three Bible studies a week, you may need to cut out one of those Bible studies. And that's coming from a preacher. I mean, what, if you can't cut out anything in your schedule, it is just that maxed out, well, then where can you live your life in just the normal day in and day out of your life where you're getting to know and being around unbelievers? That has to be the thrust. That has to be a question on your radar. And that's the second point, the, 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 really the pattern of what this looks like. So, okay, we looked at the why, the, the purpose of why we do mission. We've looked at, we just looked at the pattern, the what, what this actually looks like. And let me just end with this, because I want to leave you with how this actually works. The inner workings, the engine of how you get this thing going. Because if I just throw that out there, love unbelievers, sacrifice, give your life away for the sake of the kingdom and you don't have the right motive to do that, then you're going to burn out. Or you're doing it purely because of guilt. My preacher boy told me to. You're doing it purely out of fear. I better do this or God's going to get me. You're going to do it purely out of pride. Well, this is what real Christians do. So what's the motive? How do we, do, how do we get the power to do this? Well, let's look at this last thing real quick. The thing that really strikes me about this passage is the way that he talks about becoming like other people. 
To them I became like them. To them I became like them. And he's using this language of slipping into their skin, of trading places with them. One Christian musician that I really like put it this way. He said, you must become like what you want to save. You must become what you want to save. And as I mentioned a, a, a minute ago, of course, the model for this is the Lord Jesus himself. He becomes like the ones he wants to save. He doesn't just throw gospel bombs from heaven. He becomes like one of us in order to save us. He is the example. Now, like I mentioned uh, in one of the earlier sessions, I like to play basketball. Uh, I'm not as good as I made my, led, myself led y'all to believe. But uh, let's just say I wanted to be as good as Michael Jordan. And so I, I bought uh, videos and documentaries of Michael Jordan playing basketball, and I studied them, and I was, and I was practicing. I was, I was basically studying how he played so that I could become like Michael Jordan. And let's just say I had enough money and enough connections to bring Michael Jordan out to my home in Boone and actually get him to teach me and to coach me hands-on. Now, if I study his life, if I study his game, if I study how he plays, I may improve. But I will never become Michael Jordan. I'm just, I will never be that good. In the same way, if you study the life of Jesus and look at how he loved people, look at how he served people, and, and all he is for you is your example. I'm just going to imitate Jesus. And that's the extent of what he is. I'm going to love like Jesus loved. I'm going to do what Jesus would do. At the end of the day, that will crush you. Because there's no way you can love like Jesus. He's, he perfectly, perfectly loves people. So when you go out and you try to imitate him, you're just going to always be reminded of the fact that you're a failure and you can't love like him. And so if Jesus, if the only thing he is to you is your example, you will burn out because you'll be so just fed up with yourself. But he's got to be more. Jesus can't just be your example. He also has to be your savior, your substitute. And this is why this language is so striking, becoming like other people, because, Jesus, because Paul uses very similar language in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the most glorious passage, the most glorious verse in the Bible, I think, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's that transfer of righteousness language. Jesus, who had no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what he's saying is Jesus didn't just take on your flesh. He took on your penalty. And when you begin to get that into your bloodstream, that Jesus' death on the cross has paid for all of your failures in ministry, past, present, and future, all of your failures in mission, all of your apathy towards unbelievers, all of your hatred towards unbelievers, all of your indifference to the sake of the lost, Jesus dealt with it and has forgiven it, past, present, and future. And when you begin to get that into your bones, and that frees you, that frees you to begin to love what he loves. So let me explain it this way and I'll be done. When, when I come home from work and Catherine has really gone to the extra mile of, of cleaning up around the house and really picking up the place and, and making the house look nice, that, that really is a really great way of serving me. And so when she loves me and serves me in that way that she kind of goes the extra mile, that makes me want to love and serve her. 
not out of returning the favor, not out of you know, settling the score, you know, not out of kind of keeping even with her. It's just that her love for me awakens my love for her. Love awakens love. That's just how love works. So let's just say that you have uh, an illness, a disease. And this, this particular disease uh, uh, is, is fatal. It is going to kill you unless you get it treated. But nobody in your particular town or your city or even in your country can treat it. The only person that can treat it is somewhere like over in Germany. But you don't have the money. You don't have the connections. There's no way for you to get this treatment done. But let's just say that you have a friend who is is not as poor as you and decides to liquidate all of their assets. They sell off everything that they own so that they can give you the money to connect you to this doctor in Germany to get this treatment for this disease that otherwise would kill you. And you do. And you go over there and you get treated and you're saved. Now, when you come back to the States, how are you going to react to that person? Are you just going to say, no, thanks, that was nice of you. No, you're going to fall on, on, on your knees. You're going to kiss their feet. You're going to say, I want to do whatever you want to do. I, you know, I'm your slave. I'm your servant. I love you. You, you would basically worship that person because they saved your life. And what Jesus does is he bankrupts himself for you. He liquidates all of his assets and he hangs on the cross and he pays what you and I can never pay even if we were to spend an eternity in hell. He pays what we can never pay and when his love for you becomes real to you, that awakens your love for him. His sacrificial love for you awakens sacrificial love for him. And now you, you begin to want to serve him and want to adore him and follow him, not out of guilt, not out of pride, not out of fear, but out of joy, out of worship, out of gratitude. And what begins to happen is that your heart slowly becomes enmeshed in his. So you begin to love what he loves and you begin to hate what he hates and your life begins to be slowly sculpted after the things that he loves and the things that he hates. And one of the things that he loves is sinners, people that are lost. And that's why he came, to go after them. So when your heart begins to get more threaded into his, we should see in your life a deeper growing desire for lost people. Paul says, I have become all things to all men. So that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Consider that an invitation for you today. Let me pray. Father, we would ask that you would give us a glimpse and maybe just a deeper glimpse of your love for us in the gospel. And I pray that, that the love that you have for us, broken, needy sinners, would compel us and inspire us and motivate us to love broken and needy sinners that we live with. And people, that, people that are hard to love, people that are annoying, people that are selfish, people that make us angry, people that disagree with us, I pray that you would free us and empower us by the gospel of grace to love our neighbor. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
Amen.